glasses and contact lenses are never going to go away. Competition for glasses and contact lenses is also never going to go away. And so we have to hold on to things that we're good at, which is also medical optometry. And um, it is frightening how many children I am seeing with my booming gland dropout because they're not blinking and they're in front of the computer. And so it's like, if people think this is going to go away, I'm sorry, but I think that they're, they're very wrong. They're either not looking for it or they're, or they're not wanting to look for it or they're seeing it and they're saying, I'll just let somebody else deal with it. Hello and welcome to the Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Dr. Amber Dunn. Um, we discussed a lot of things. We discussed, she's got a really interesting practice dynamic and, and uh, the way she administers pr- her practice is worth your time hearing. It's pretty cool. Um, pretty innovative. And then also we talked a lot about her dry eye protocol, which I think also is innovative. You, you, if you haven't gotten to know Amber before, or you haven't met her, you should check her out. Uh, please enjoy our conversation. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. Emerging presbyopes and emetropic presbyopes can be tricky. These patients want and need additional help at near, but they can be resistant to solutions that create even mild distance blur. The MyDay multifocal lens has been great for our presbyopic patients. It allows those patients to transition into a multifocal more easily and more comfortably. And we've had this lens for long enough now that we have been able to see the simple and how simple the adaptation can be when adjusting from lower ad designs to higher ad designs. When prescribing MyDay contact lenses, you can feel confident about your environmental impact because for every MyDay contact lens sold in the United States, CooperVision's partner, Plastic Blank, collects and converts an equal amount of ocean-bound plastic through their global network. MyDay multifocal contact lenses will provide your patients with a great quality of vision and comfortable lens wearing experience, all while making a difference in our environment. So if you haven't started utilizing MyDay Multifocal in your practice, I'd encourage you to reach out to your CooperVision representative to get started. One of the challenging things with patients is when they invest in a really high quality pair of glasses and and customized lenses, it can be challenging to keep those lenses clean, keep them scratch-free, smudge-free. And so we now have the ability with Crizal Sapphire HR lenses to offer our patients the best-in-class anti-reflective coating in a way that is really high resistance so that they're not uh, having to care for their lenses as much as when those lenses are caring for them. So remember that you can provide patients that best-in-quality, best-in-class transparency, clarity, durability, and UV protection in a single Crizal coating. If you want to learn more about Crizal Sapphire HR, contact your Essilor account executive or visit EssilorPro.com slash Crizal. Tell me about this traveling back and forth. So, you know, um, uh, Ashley McFerrin does that. Mm-hmm. How come you do? Yeah. <laughs> because why would you want to live a simple life? Um, yeah. No. Uh, So I started my practice in 2014 and my husband and I met in college and we were going to stay in Oregon. That was our path. And, um, you know, life changes. And we decided that we weren't doing what we wanted to do for our family. And my husband's dad has gotten a little older. Uh, duh. And, um, he grew up in, um, in Phoenix outside of Phoenix area. So he, this is, this is his stomping grounds. And, um, we just decided that it would be better for our family. So we, decided even though our baby, my practice was in 
Oregon that it was better for our family to move. So um, wow. we we had to put a lot of pieces together. We had to work with a lot of people to make it work. But we bought a house, I mean, on purpose, but we bought a house where my kids have um, eight of their cousins within walking distance. And, you know, for you as having somebody that has a lot of kids, you know how important family is. And, yep. um, you know, it does make it easier because I am able to leave and my kids have so much family here that they don't realize I'm gone, you know, I mean. So you go, so you go and travel back to Oregon. How often to see patients? Like you've got associates now, so I do. I have a full time associate, which is awesome. She's a rock star, and then I have a part time associate as well. And uh, I travel approximately every other week. Um, starting in 2024, it'll be closer to like 40 percent of the working days instead of 50 percent right now. Uh, and then the goal by 2025 will be to go every, every four to six weeks and be there for a week. So at that, is that point, just I will... to run the practice or, or is it, uh, actually seeing patient care, like in, involved in patient care? Uh, both. So I primarily, when I'm there, I am like booked with patients. So that's the goal is we're working to narrow down the set of patients that I need to have. Like, you know, we're trying not to put new patients on my schedule unless my associates are full and we're trying to make it so that way I can really be digging in and diving into the dry eye program that I'm trying to put together in my clinic. And then, you know, there's a handful of comprehensive patients that have been seeing me since I opened. So, of course, I'm going to see them for their annual exam. So that's part of the reason for the taper as well. Uh, and then it's nice because when I'm in Arizona, I'm able to be a mom. I'm able to be a wife. I'm able to be a business owner. So I've been able to grow the business on the back end because I have admin days and I have admin time that's built in because I'm in another state. So I can't, you know, really be seeing those patients. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Um, is there a direct flight from from PDX yeah. to Sky Harbor? Yeah, there's actually a lot. There's a lot of options and it's a direct flight. It's about two hours and five minutes from Phoenix to Portland. And then it's about two and a half hours from Portland to Phoenix. So, so I think there's a couple things that are interesting to me in that is how did you get your patients comfortable? Cause obviously like you, you mentioned, I need to get some of these patients, obviously a ton of patients that already want to see your associates. But the ones who still want to see you, what are the kind of things you're doing to get them be, to be comfortable not having to wait and be on your schedule so that your schedule's so full so that you can get to the point where it's every six to eight weeks where you're actually physically coming back to the practice? What are you using for that? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's helpful that both of my associates were students of mine at Pacific, uh, and then one of them was also an extern at my office. So they, you know... I trained them. I mean, obviously I can't take credit for everything, but it helps when I'm able to tell them that like I trained this associate. And also um, my full-time associate has been with me almost three years now. So she's well known throughout the practice, which is great. And I, I tell my patients all the time, we all work synergistically together. We share notes. We all have like mindedness. And so you might not see me if there's an emergency or you have surgery and there's a post-operative appointment, but if we plan on, you know, scheduling you out for X appointment, you're going to be seeing me. And so I think that just talking to them and also sh I share my story, like my patients will come in and be like, how's Arizona? Oh, no, how's this crazy life you're living? <laughs> and I think being so open with that and being like, you know what? Nobody lives a traditional life anymore. So, you know, why is mine so different? It's just a different type of different. And I think sharing that with them and letting them know I'm following my dreams of being the best mom I can be as well as the best, you know, I think that truly 
over this last year, I have found that I have become a better person. I'm happier, I'm healthier. And so I can pour from a more full cup into my patients and into my family. So why do you think that's the case? Why do you think you're happier and healthier? You know, it's such a good question. I don't know exactly. Uh, maybe because I've been able to spend more time on myself. You know, they all, you always say you can't pour from an empty cup. And it's like, you know, I, I have time when I'm in Oregon and I'm not, you know, directly putting my kids to bed. Instead, I'm, you know, video chatting them to bed. But then I have time to, um, you know, I've been reading my Bible a lot more. I've been doing personal development a lot more. I've been able to work out more. And so doing that when I'm in Oregon has allowed me to figure it out in my schedule when I'm with my family. Um, so I'm, I'm feeling healthier. Plus, watching my children be so happy. I mean, we went to my nephew's um, baseball game on Wednesday. And I, I think there was 10 cousins, maybe 12 cousins all at the game. We got a picture of all the kids together. So that kind of stuff has just built life into me. Um, I also have an amazing staff. My two managers are like two of my closest friends as well. And knowing that they're protecting and growing my practice while I'm here has been very helpful as well. Um, yeah, so it's really hard to put words into, but I know for a fact that I'm a healthier and happier person, and so is my husband and my kids, than I was a year ago. I mean, I think I think uh, I can completely relate to, uh, in the sense of understanding that having your kids have a, a support system around them is super helpful, which, which actually means you've got a support system around you. And I don't know that I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I've never, you know, we've never done what you're talking about, but we are where all of our family is. I mean, this is where our people are. And there's, you, I, I would never have the idea of how hard it would be to be in your place in Oregon, right? Like, like what you had to live with in Oregon, not like Oregon's horrible. It's not, I'm just saying, I'm just saying like being away from that, that support structure uh, or not having one really does make things a lot more challenging. And the only play, the only time I could get there was about a year ago, um, a major, like a really big company uh, came, like had a headhunter reach out to me. They were looking f to fill a spot on their, um, like they needed a director of government relations and professional relations, which like based on my background was, there was probably nobody better. And that's, I'm not saying that arrogantly, just like I, I, that's what I do, right? It's the stuff I do. And, um, and so I was like, wow. And so I sort of kind of explored it in a sense of like, this would be interesting. I wonder what, like, I, I've never thought of myself as being a corporate guy uh, at all. And so it was like a 90% no immediately, but just to kind of see how it all played out and see what that would be like, it was, it, it became a very, very hard no, very, very fast. And the, there's a number of reasons for it, but the main reason was like, I know Omaha. My wife knows Omaha. We know which schools our kids are going to go to. We have like this network of friends from years, right? Like a lifetime of friends that have like crept up uh, in different places and different. And so like, it's like that, like, okay, well, where would we, because we'd have to move. Wh where would we live in this other city? And where, like, what would be a good place to live? You know, where would we, where would we send our kids to school? And I mean, all these things that you just don't even think about, uh, mm -hmm. that's, that speaks value to me from what you're discussing and how ill at ease I probably would have felt if I had made that decision 
and that's the decision you made, you know, in 2014, essentially, but you now have this piece because of where you are. And, and I think the interesting part about it is it allows you to assign. So what, what I was kind of doing was assigning almost a monetary value in my mind of what we had built up around us. Like not just like how much I just replacing income, but replacing income and then how much would it cost to replace the income plus all of the lifetime of, of support that we have around us was, I mean, practically like literally priceless. Like my wife and I were talking about, I was like, well, what if they paid you this? He's like, nope. And they're like, let's double it. What would they, what if they paid me this? It's like, you couldn't even get close. Like the, the numbers were getting astronomically high. And what that showed me is just that like, we weren't asking for that. We were just like playing a thought experiment, right? Like what is the, what is the stuff that you've built up around you worth? And I only bring that up because most of us don't get to that point. And you've sort of uh, come away from that where it's going the opposite. Like what would it be worth, even if it cost us more? And even if it doesn't sound like this is the case, but even if it was less, we made less money, this is so much better. You know what I mean? Cause most people, cause I, cause I, most people would be like, well, I'm away from my spouse for a couple of days on end. That's, that's more challenging. Right. But then you're saying, no, it's not because of all these other things. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. And also, I mean, so I was living in Forest Grove, which is right where Pacific university is. My clinic is 21 miles from there. So it was a 42 ish minute commute back road. So it was pretty stable yep. every day. Yep. I've driven that road couple times so, quite a few uh, times so yep. so i was making that commute every day well monday through friday right and i was sometimes leaving before my kids and or husband were awake in the morning and i was sometimes getting home after they had gone to bed and so like even though i'm gone often i feel like i'm actually with my family more and it, like right now you and i can see each other how amazing is this like i can yeah. see my kids every day even though i'm not with them you know 10 years ago it wouldn't be as easy and so it's yep. there's just i i think about those things and it's like you know before i would be at work and i'd be stressed that i wasn't at home and then i'd be at home and i'd be stressed that i wasn't at work and i don't quite have that feeling here anymore i mean you know practice has definitely taken a hit because we went from me being full-time to very part-time and so you know, there is that stress there. And there's not to say that, you know, I don't have stressful days. Um, you know, that is would definitely be a fallacy, but it's just a different type of stress. And it's a different type of feeling. And when you displace yourself geographically, it like, what's the point of being stressed about something you have zero ability to uh, change or manage, you know? Well, I think that's exactly my point. I mean, it, it we, we live in a time right now where um, I, I think I don't know if COVID had much to do with this for you, but for me, there there was a lot of, I've, I've told this story in the podcast, but there was a lot of sort of resetting of what's important, you know, like, you know, what's important your whole life, you know, what's important, but until it's, it's like, I've been working this hard for something that could completely be wiped away. I mean, literally that, that for two weeks, you're thinking like, we well, are not have a practice, you know, I mean, there was a couple, couple moments in there. So with within two weeks, you go from from here to way down there, and and you realize like, what what am I working for? Like, what am I working so hard for? And that doesn't mean you don't work hard. Like, I work probably harder now than well, probably the same, but um, but something's Just different, different mindset. Yeah, yeah, something's different. 
Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Something's different. I agree. So tell me about, you know, I want to talk, I, I, I wanted you on for a number of reasons, but I mean, one, cause we go back a long ways. Um, in 2014, I must've known you when you were, I knew it was, you were on the board of the AOSA mm -hmm. and that's where we probably first met. So it was probably in what, like 2013, 2012, 2012, 2013. Yeah. Cause, yeah. um, I graduated in 13 and then did a residency. So, and I would have known you, um, I feel like we maybe met when I was a trustee, but it might've been when I was the vice president. I'm not sure, but yeah. Yeah, I bet it was some well, some sometime in there. Yeah. And anyway, it's been fun to see it kind of come up and even create like what you're doing now, which is a novelty. And I think it would be inspiring to a lot of people to hear your story. And um, but also kind of your your ideas behind ocular surface dysfunction and even, uh, you know, some of, of the things that you're doing with hypochlorous acid, which has been around for a long time. But I think the way you're using it is a little bit um has piqued my interest. So that's, that's what I wanted to talk about. So tell me, you know, you, you've got, you said, you mentioned you're, you're building your dry practice and we'll call it your dry protocol. So like most, uh, independent optometrists that own their own, own, own their own practice, the primary mechanism that patients come into their practice is for comprehensive care. And, and I'm assuming that's the case for you. Is that an accurate assumption? Yes, I will say over the last probably six to 12 months, I have had an uptick of where I am a little bit of a referral center. Like there have been some providers that have been referring into me, which has mm -hmm. been an amazing feeling. But I would say generally, yes, patients are coming to us for comprehensive care and then we see problems that concern us and then we take care of it from there. Yep. So from a dry eye standpoint, you know, tell me the things that you're looking for at the comprehensive examination that signs symptoms that say, hey, we're gonna do something. Walk me through that. Yeah, yeah. so um, at our clinic, um, which, you know, there's pros and cons to it, but we don't have technicians that work up our patients, so we work up our own patients. And I love it because right from doing auto refraction, I can see immediately if the patient smires, <laughs> like how many times they're blinking, if they can hold their eye open when I'm doing their OCT. I mean, I'm getting information without them telling me anything from the very beginning. Um, so I'm looking at stuff like that. I am, um, assessing how they're doing when I'm taking their VAs, if they're having to blink a lot, or I ask them, you know, if they don't read the line very quickly, ask them, if you blink a couple of times, does that make it look better? Or does it make it look worse? So I'm tuning into that stuff and I've actually trained both my associates to also ask those questions. They don't, they don't, um, treat any of it really. They send it all to me, but I, I've trained them to look for it. So it's starting there. Um, I'm watching them. Are they blinking really hard? Are they blinking at all? Like, I can't tell you how often if I'm doing pupils or if I'm doing EOMs, I'm like, go ahead and blink. Like how often I have to tell patients to blink. And then when I've got them behind the microscope, I'm immediately looking at their lid margin and their eyelashes because, you know, I don't know what the statistic is and you might know what it is. How many patients have, you know, meibomian gland dysfunction that 70%. have dry eye? 70%. Okay, 70%. Well, I'm yeah. going to go with 100. Uh, yeah, I'd agree with you. I treat the lids on every single patient that I have. Well, I tell them that I'm going to treat their lids. They may not always do that, but um, I am treating the lids 100% of the time. And they're my bowman glands. And so I'm looking at that lid margin. I'm looking how rough it is. Does it have a biofilm buildup? It's keratinized. I'm looking um, at the tear film. I'm, you know, looking at their blink rate. And I'm just doing that as I'm doing their normal slit lamp. I, I'm not at a point right now where I'm doing screening mybography, uh, but I am looking at the glands when I'm averting the lids 
Now, why, why haven't you made that decision for screening my biography? Because I haven't quite figured out how to work it into my routine yet. So I have a, a my box, I think it's called, um, which is a great little unit that I pop onto my slit lamp. Um, it's just, I have to rotate my computer. It, it's a little bit, um, it's not even cumbersome, but it's just, I haven't figured out a flow for it yet. So I'm not at that point yet. Um, but you know, when we get to this, I do a comprehensive workup on patients and I include that in the workup. I haven't, uh, quite figured out how to do a full screening myography yet just within my flow uh, but i would like to get there because um i feel like showing patients what their meibomian glands look like is the most powerful visual tool that i have to get patients to have buy-in to uh, start therapy um, or continue therapy you know as as we're looking at it if it's um, if we've seen some change over time uh, but that's, those are really the big things that I'm looking for when I, um, am assessing if a patient has dry eye and actually in my clinic, I call it ocular surface instability because I really do feel like we've got a system that is not stable and we need to try to rebalance and gain homeostasis. And, um, so that's kind of how I talk to patients about it because, you know, you know how confused patients get when you say it's dry eye and they're like, no, mm -hmm. it's not my eyes cry. My eyes don't feel dry. So, yeah. Yeah, and so I just tell them it's it's unstable, it's inflamed, and we need to work on getting that inflammation down. And those types of words really resonate with patients and they understand a little more. And then I can help um, use what I'm seeing or what, um, uh, what I'm saying to help align with their symptoms or the lack there of their symptoms. I can talk to them about that. So um, at their comprehensive exam, uh, I, I do play the insurance game appropriately and I, I take care of their comprehensive exam and then I let them know that, you know, I'm seeing something that is concerning and I would like to, um, I would like to have them come back and do this thorough workup on them. And that's when so we do you do nothing at the, like you don't do any treatments at the comprehensive exam. So generally speaking, I will start the patient on a hypochlorous solution. And I call it okay. solution because acid sounds really terrifying. Yeah, no, um, I like that. I like that I, better. I'm using, so I'm using the hand prep on my hands, which is, which is a form of the hypochlorous that I use. It's a, it's a hand sanitizer cleanser. And I'm using that a, um, all throughout the exam. And then I'm showing the patient uh, the, the lid prep. And I actually, you know, if I have my glasses on, I pull them off and I just spray and I'm talking to them as I'm spraying it. And I'm saying, hmm. you see some of that went in my mouth and it's safe. And, um, the, the, you know, and then that's kind of how I start that. And I, I say, this is how we can be proactive and you can start to feel better and we can start to see changes before I have you come back for your thorough workup that we're gonna do. Now, do you, do you start them on the spray or do you start them on the drop? Uh, generally, I start them on the spray because it's super effective and easy. I mean, mm -hmm. easy button, you know, obviously it's going to be more effective if it's over early on a clean face, not with makeup on, but it's still going to give you some effect when you have makeup on. So I get them started on the spray. Now, there are certain cases uh, if I'm seeing a patient that I will start them on the drops, but I feel like the easier you can... Um, give a patient like the easy button, which a spray is way easier in most cases than an eye drop, that you're going to get that buy-in. Now, are you having them, because um, I think the, the biggest challenge that I always see is 
you don't want to it's hard to backtrack away from what the bottle says right so it says don't put directly in your eyes and i always tell patients that as well it's like yeah it's going to say that but it's for your lids some of it's going to get in your eyes it's just and so um are you having them close their eyes are you having them open their eyes with the spray so if i'm treating ocular surface instability i am having them i'm like you can either blink or you can just have your eyes closed when they're spraying it and i tell them as they the mist is so fine that some of it's going to get in there anyway and then as they're blinking it's going to pull onto their lid margin and the idea that we think it's then getting into the eye um mm-hmm. in some cases like before we had eyedropper form i would have patients pull down their lid and spray right in there but that's kind of uncomfortable. I mean, it doesn't hurt, but it's a weird feeling to like spray something directly into your eye. So mm-hmm. um, I, I do, I, I do say, you know, it's totally fine if your eyes are closed. And that's also really nice because then you can use it on kids and they don't have as much pushback. And at the, at the exchange, so back in April, you had presented some cases, uh, well, not some cases, some data that you have been working on related to osmolarity. Mm-hmm. Do, can you, can you share that? Yeah, um, so we did, I did two studies in my office. I did one um, pilot study, which was the spray twice a day versus um, the And what's the concentration? Was... So, so we've, we've left the brands out, but what's the concentration of the um, solution, the hypochlorous solution that you're using? Oh, 50 parts per million, either. I think. I think it's 50 okay. parts per million. Um, okay. You know, I actually have some around here somewhere. I should have grabbed it. Anyway, um, so uh, I had them do that twice a day, and then there was a con- control group which was using preservative-free artificial tears twice a day. And um, you know, I was staining the patients. I was having them do a speed questionnaire, and I was having them do osmolarity. And um, the the biggest thing that we got out of that study was that their symptom scores were statistically significantly less in one week. Um, which which symptom I, scores did you use? Um, the speed score. I okay, did the speed, speed. test. Mm-hmm. And, um, and what was interesting is that the patients that were using artificial tears, their scores actually went up at week one. Hmm. Ultimately, their scores did go down, but still not as they didn't even hit the baseline um, that they started at. And then, so what was the statistically patients, significant? Sorry, what um, what was uh, the? Do you know like the speed number that that it was uh, no. before and after on average? It's okay. Sorry, but... I, I probably should have. I probably should have. I should have known that you were going to ask me questions like this. <laughs> sorry, I graph. I can like see the graph in my head, but I can't remember what the numbers were. Um, yeah, it's okay. So got that going for me. Um, sorry. Okay. No, I'm not but, trying. I wasn't uh, trying to get you. I was just trying to like no. in my mind. I, I think about speed, and uh, that's what I use. And so I like to think about, you know, if I can if I can drop a patient. 50%, that's huge. If I can drop them, even, even if it's right away, you know, if I can make them feel better and it's only 25 to 30%, they'll come back and they'll say, yeah, I do feel better. And I'll ask them, okay. Cause usually I'm not doing a speed on the comprehensive exam, but I'll start, you know, I'll start my interventions. Um, and then I'll ask them how they feel coming back and I'll say this. Yeah, I think it's a little bit better. And I'll ask them, do you feel like it's 10% better, 50% better? 90% better. And then they're kind of like, if, if, if it's like 30 to 40%, I'm like, all right, it's pretty good. Uh, so that's, that's yeah. all. And, and then, so I'm not using a speed at the comprehensive exam. It would be at, it would be at that, that first ocular at surface first evaluation. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So in my mind though, I, I, I'm always hitting, like, if I can get 30%, it's pretty good with a, with just, uh, so anyway, that's all, that's all I'm asking. Yeah. Is, yeah. 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 Uh, you know, so I, 
And maybe, I mean, I use, I, I ask the patient and then I also use the speed scores um, just like a normal practice. But I generally, because sometimes if I get a speed score that comes back and it appears to be the same, I'll ask the patient, like, do you feel better, worse, mm -hmm. or the same since I've seen you? And they're like, oh my gosh, so much better. So, so you know, sometimes what they write down doesn't quite, um, you know, reflect their actual symptoms or how they're feeling. And that's the study aside. That's just like in my general practice. But yeah. Um, so yeah, sorry, I, I interrupted you. So, no. so you're, yeah. So, so <laughs> your their speed nice. scores so, improve. Yeah. So we had, um, and the osmolarity also improved. Now, um, again, I, cause I don't remember the exact numbers, but we had, uh, osmolarity improvement that was over the six week period, which, which is important. Um, I will say there were a handful of patients that did not have, um, abnormal osmolarity scores to begin with. Mm -hmm. Uh, so because it was either they had to have a speed score, um, uh, again, I can't even remember what the criteria was, but they had to have a certain number on their speed score or abnormal osmolarity. Mm -hmm. And so um, we did we did notice an improvement, which was great. And the second study that we did was bigger. It was across eleven states, um, and other you know so other doctors were helping. And this was using the drops to try to see if putting the drop on the eye would provide symptom relief similar to what the spray would do. This we were comparing, some doctors were doing twice a day, some doctors were doing four times a day. And there were a few doctors that, that tested osmolarity, but unfortunately we didn't have enough doctors that were doing, enough doctors with patients that did osmolarity to give us any sort of information. Mm -hmm. But what we did find is that same thing, symptoms really was hitting right at that one week mark, patients were already feeling better, and we were getting approximately equal um, symptom relief two times a day as we were four times a day. So like I had said before, if we can hit that easy button and have patients doing things less throughout the day, it's um, you're going to have better compliance and patients are going to be happier. So two times a day with the drops, we were getting just as much symptom relief as four times a day. That's interesting. Yeah. What do you think the mechanism of that? And then clearly it's not about it's not about providing more volume or likely more volume. It's it's got to be something with with inflammation and antimicrobial properties. Yeah. So I, I mean, I know on like a cellular level that HOCL works by rushing the cell wall with oxygen, causing, you know, those, those invader cells to explode and causing our cells to work at a higher level. So I, I like to use my Tom McCall type of voice and I say it heals and it keals. So we get, <laughs> we get, that's, I kind of decided that that was my, is that what he says? I, that does no, sound like something he would say. I came up with that. I'm just using that does sound like something he would say. <laughs> so I'm hoping that that I hope I'm hoping more people use that. But yeah, so because it really is it's healing your tissue. And then it's also killing the bad stuff um, without eradicating everything. And so what my hypothesis is, and tell me what you think is that it's reducing the biofilm that's building up on the eyelid margin. And so that's allowing those meibomian yeah. glands to be able to express easier. It's allowing less um, uh, friction on the eyelid to the eyeball, which is then creating less inflammation and irritation. That's my hypothesis. But I don't yeah. know that we know. Why do you have any? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a big, I'm big on biofilms. Like I think biofilms are a big, a big player in, in this. And so if it's the case that, that it's reducing biofilms, I mean, that would be the next study that would be interesting, right? Is like, you know, doing the exact same thing and having a, um, you know, a, a scraping or a debridement, you know, at certain mm -hmm. intervals. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it makes, it makes as much sense, uh, to me as, 
as other, you know, as other mechanisms. I, you know, I think um, if, if it's the case, you said that it make, makes our cells work better, that could do, I think that could help it as well, right? But, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think, I think, I mean, I think biofilms are kind of the culprit. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I think for a it, lot of do stuff. Do you, do you debride lids at your office? I do. Yeah. But I, I, um, I do it. I don't, again, I don't do it at the comprehensive exam, but I, I do it. I'm not sure how often you should do it. I usually will do it before treatments and then, mm, um, okay. or if I see it, so like before IPL, Lipiflow, tear care, uh, we'll do it, um, before all of those. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and, and then if I see like, uh, if I see obvious biofilms, then I'll do it. Um, but I don't do it routinely on every, every patient. What about mm. you? Uh, I also don't do it routinely on comprehensive patients. However, if I see something that is really bad, I will take a picture of it and then I will debride the lid margin and then I will take another picture and then I'll show the patients. And, mm. and that's something I feel like pictures are so valuable and I, you know, I can't charge for that necessarily, but I, I show them because I want them to have buy-in and see what I'm, what I'm seeing and what I'm looking at. And I do debride at almost every, um, ANTSEG evaluation that I do with patients, because that to me is letting me know how much biofilm is there. Like how much am I getting, um, when I'm, when I'm scraping and I don't, I'm not aggressive. It's very, very light. Cause I don't want to cause damage. Mm -hmm. Um, but it does help me and I, I will debride first and then I will press on the lid margins to see, you know, what kind of, if I'm getting any oil out, how much am I getting out? How much mybum am I getting out? And I do have a handful of patients that actually I have debriding their own lids at home. Mm -hmm. um, there's a company out there that makes a really nice, it looks like a little toothbrush and it's great. And I have had patients just rave about how much better their eyes feel just by maintaining that, um, when they're at home. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's so, um, that's why we made the peak Wava is, is that mm -hmm. people could, can do something like that at home and also like help I mean, women really like. I had a patient the other day who she lives in my neighborhood and I've known her since she was a kid. She's like in her mid twenties. And, um, before I even, she didn't know that, that I had done that, that we developed that company. And, um, and she said, and she would, but she was complaining to me. She was like, can you talk to me? It was like her first exam in the last four years. And she's a little hyperope and uh, a little hyperopic and, um, uh, nothing significant, but, um, it's it was causing her, uh, symptoms at the computer. Anyway, she, but her point, like, before, as she was kind of giving me the litany of things that she was concerned about, she's like, and I just have this hard time getting my makeup off. And even after I do a really good job, you know, using this solution, I still, and I, and I was like, oh, we got a solution for that. And like that night, she, I get a text at like 930 at night, like, I, this is unbelievable. I can't believe, and, and she, and it mainly was because exactly what you're talking about is like, patients will do it and they'll feel better. And they don't even know that they didn't feel good in the first place, mm -hmm. but, yeah. but it's their biofilms, it's their, it's their eye makeup, and they just have to have something to be able to get it off better. Do you know, so, um, have you ever met Kathleen Mistrota? I don't think so. Or Catherine Mistrota? I don't think yeah, so. Catherine Mistrota. She, she made the Mistrota paddle. Do you know who she is? Oh, you yeah, know, yeah, You're yeah, aware yeah. of the name. Yeah. 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 Well, I met her, um, I, I did a poster with her um, at Academy this year, and um, I got to meet her at Academy. So... Uh, it was, I was totally geeking out, but she made a little, like, she's got a little widget that's, um, you know, a little silicone widget that, uh, sounds exactly like what you're talking about. And, um, 
yeah, so it's just it's it was cool to see that. And I said, "What?" I said, "You got that too." So I've shown her the Weva, and um, and she's like, "Wow, that's awesome! I I need to have one of those." And so it was pretty cool to geek out with her about um, about my bovine glands and uh, yeah, that's anyway, awesome. Anyway, and, and well, debreeding, I, so, right? So that was a big deal for her too. It's debreeding. Yeah. So um, question then on the way because we just uh-huh. got it in. We have it in our office because I'm planning oh, cool, on. Thanks. I mean, I'm gonna be yeah. Uh, I'm gonna be using it for um, you know patients to be able to have at home. Mm-hmm. But right now I just do lid debridement, which I still think because you know that's not necessarily getting on the eyelid margin. But um, yep. I have been contemplating actually doing because i bought a unit for the office doing a way yeah. of treatment in the yeah. office lots of people are doing that doing yep. my light therapy or or tear care so okay well that's great yep. yeah lots of people are doing it i i um so the 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 whole idea um was to have something in office or or at home that the patients could do we knew it wasn't probably going to be as aggressive as like some of the other tools that we would have like a uh, golf club spud or a chimera spatula or you know even like a blefex right? right but uh, but what we're finding is that like people are using it and they're having good results doing it that way uh, I, I i have not used it in office i still use if i'm going to debride i use uh, my my surgical tools but oh. um but yeah i mean especially if you were going to have like before ipl and you wanted to offload a lot of that stuff to your staff and you didn't staff, want to yeah. have them, you know, have to mess with the eyelid and the kind of potential issues if they're not, you know, good about being around there. So yeah. Yeah. People are using it for that for sure. Cool. Yeah. Let, let me know how it goes for you. That's exciting. I, yeah, I will for sure. I just, um, we got our package. So we, I ordered at, um, the exchange in April and then I yeah. it just took a while to get it. And then you yeah. know, with my we schedule, have- I'm not there all the time. So yeah. You're in popular well, demand. It's awesome. Yeah, I know it was. It that's it, it, absolutely right. It, it uh, we have like you when you manufacture something. I mean, I, I wasn't planning on talking about peak or the wave on this, but but when you manufacture something, it's like a whole different ball game. I mean, like all yeah. the logistics of you know um, internal things for a widget and putting it all together and having the, there's not that many companies in the United States that can do that kind of stuff. Like there's not that many manufacturing companies. I mean, it says a lot, I think about, uh, about, you know, the country, what we hear as far as offloading, you know, um, manufacturing, but that's absolutely mm-hmm. the case. There's only like maybe three, maybe four manufacturers that, that can do that in this country. And we were really committed to keeping it in the country. And one of them uh, that we started working with during the pandemic, uh, just because of, like they were in California, and I, they, they had some sort of regulation where no matter how many how many square foot you had in California in your building, you could only have like a certain number of people. So we had to like start all over because they yeah. that company was so so we were working with that company for like a year build up and then COVID hit and then we had to start all over with another company because this company just couldn't handle what they were currently doing and what we needed them to do. And so anyway, it was just like totally eye opening. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's a, that's a whole other aside. I, so I, I want to get back to your, your story. So debridement, now you've got people doing some debridement at home. So they come back for their Oculus. So you start them BID dosing of spray or drops, um, and then they come back for their Oculus service evaluation. How long are you letting them go before, uh, before you reassess? 
Are you doing a week? Are you doing six weeks? So I usually try to get them in for their initial assessment as soon as it works out in their schedule and mine. I book them for 45 minutes because, and I'm, I'm probably talking for 20 to 25 minutes of that time. And it doesn't always take the full 45, but I like to, I like to create a long appointment so I can get through everything I have. Cause a lot of times patients have tons of questions. So I create a personalized report for them. I take images of their lid margins, of their lashes, of their meibomian glands. Um, if they have any staining, I take pictures of that line of marks. I take pictures of that if they have it. And then I put it together in a, um, uh, a document for them and it shows this is what your images look like and then this is what normal should look like so even if you don't know what you're looking at if you see normal in yours and they don't look the same it's a lot easier to understand what's going on and then I also provide them with a table that has a bunch of norms of things that I'm measuring you know are their eyelids sealed all the way you know what's their tear breakup time I call it tear um, evaporation, um, you know, putting it in simple terms, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of that information, their osmolarity. Mm-hmm. And then I provide them with this. And then I also print them. Those I send by email. I show it to them and send it by email. And then I print them their um, uh, treatment plan, which we also email. And on the treatment plan, it does say with the spray, like typed out, you know, it's okay to go in your eyes or spray on your eyelids. And I always tell the patients too, because I think you had asked that question earlier and I don't yep. think I addressed it. I tell them, I know this is what it says, but listen to what I say. Don't worry about what the bottle says. Like, this is what I'm telling you to do with it. Um, but at their, at their evaluation, they actually get that written out as well. Um, once I start them on a treatment plan, unless I feel like they would benefit from from photobiomodulation or something like it like an evacuation either by um using tear care or um manually expressing after just a warm compress if they need to come in for that if they don't need one of those things right away i go six weeks six weeks is my standard time period to see them back and Mm um you know if they don't need an in-office therapy at that point yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i mean and then and then so if i if i try to get through the whole practice or the whole life cycle of a patient with ocular surface dis- dysfunction in your practice or ocular surface disease or however you want to talk about it. I know you, yours was ocular surface instability. Um, the So they come back for their six week. They either need another treatment or they had another treatment or didn't. Then mm-hmm. at that six week mark, what's your normal, like what's the normal pr- uh, flow for that patient? So it, it obviously depends per patient. If I have a Correct. patient that I'm feeling yeah. like is pretty stable, we've got them on treatment and they're, they're either still getting better or they're, they're at a place where they're leveled off and we're not seeing a decline in either their symptoms or their signs. We're seeing them every six months. So either myself or an associate is seeing them for their comprehensive exam. And then I am doing a check-in at six months. Mm-hmm. That is if the patients are doing really good. Um, if the patients are like, we're still manipulating their therapies, it might be every six weeks that I'm seeing them. Um, generally, unless it's really bad, I'm not seeing them sooner than that. Sometimes if I put them on a steroid or if I've got them on some other types of treatments, it'll be, you know, anywhere between a week to four weeks. But six week intervals until we've got ourselves at a good place, then maybe we bump it to three months. And then hopefully we get to that point, you know, as quickly as possible where the patient's coming in, you know, every six weeks, or I'm sorry, every six months, because, you know, as much as I want to make sure I'm taking care of them, I don't want them to feel overloaded. Like, Hey, I've only gone to the doctor every, you know, couple of years in the past. And now you're wanting me to come 10 times in one year. Like Mm -hmm. this is excessive. You know, I certainly don't want them to feel that, but, um, 
I, I think with the images that I show them and the data that I show them and they get excited when their osmolarity goes down or when they're feeling better, I think that's the, the nice buy-in that the patients get and want to then come back. I think when I, I've said this, this comment a number of times and, and what I like going through in these protocols that people develop uh, is because it articulates the, the idea that there, are, there is um, a whole bunch of ways that you can manage ocular surface disease really well. But, but, there, but almost everybody that does it really well has their own slight variation. But what, what, what is not varied is exactly what you just said there is they start they start with a patient where they'll get them you know they'll see them relatively frequently early on so that they can assess their treatments and and fix the problem or get the problem managed but the really successful ones never let them go longer than it longer than six months and so they've they sort of build that into the practice like with the idea that yes it's a chronic disease yes it's going to need re frequent check-ins. Yes, there are going to be points in time where that patient comes back to the comprehensive exam and things have destabilized. Maybe they need another IPL, maybe they need another lipoflow, or they're doing great. And then they come back six months later and they maybe they need something else or they're doing fine. Right. And so what I love to get to is those patients where it's like, yeah, we're, we're doing good. All I'm doing is checking in and we're saying, Hey, and we're talking about the kids, uh, or in your case, Arizona. And, um, and they're just, it's like, yeah, everything's good, doing well. And I think when you do it like that, uh, and and you get used to that, um, I think there's this. And initially, there's this sense among optometrists that, well, if I if I tell them everything's fine, what value did I provide? And it's like, mm -hmm. no, patients, like, patients never feel like, well, that's it. I, I mean, those visits might be for, in my practice. They might be ten to fifteen minutes. They might only spend five to ten minutes with me on those visits, uh, but they never feel gypped. Like. They never feel like no, they didn't I, get some value out of it. I agree. And especially because if you're building that relationship and I like, I tell the patients like, oh my gosh, like, guess what? I don't have to see you for another six months. Like yep. we joke that we need to have like a, you know, a frequent rewards or like a frequent flyer number or something when patients have to come in all the time. But it's so exciting for me to be like, I have loved seeing you this often, but now we get to go an extended period of time. Or if I see them after an extended period of time and be like, we went too long this time and I need to yeah. see you a little sooner. Like I think having having those um that communication is so important because you, you listen to what they have to say and even if out of the 10 minutes that you're with the patient they're talking for eight minutes they still feel valued because you you assess things and and they felt heard because you know you're you're, you're their doctor you're kind of their friend and um that's also what i love about our profession is that we can build these relationships and we don't have to spend you know, crazy amounts of time with them for them to feel valued and to feel heard and um, well taken care of. As you know, patients with vitreous floaters are often frustrated by their symptoms. The challenge as clinicians is to offer solutions for our patients for vitreous floaters that are effective. But more often than not, the options of YAG vitreolysis and vitrectomy are not practical because the benefits don't outweigh the risks. That's where Vitreous Health from MacuHealth comes into play. Previously on the podcast, I've discussed the FLIES study with Dr. John Nolan, and the bottom line is that I can be confident prescribing this for my patients with floaters because I can tell them a large randomized placebo-controlled trial found that after six months of supplementation with Vitreous Health, floaters were reduced in size by approximately 30% 
and 70% of patients had an improvement in their symptoms. Vitreous Health has been great for my patients, and we really feel like we have a viable option to treat patients with vitreous floaters now that we didn't have before. If you're not utilizing Vitreous Health for your patients, reach out to your Macchia Health representative now. The most common questions I get include, what ophthalmological codes or evaluation and management codes should I use? What ICD-10 codes do I need to bill with this CPT code? What CPT codes can be billed together and what can't? And my favorite, how do I manage a patient who has diabetes who comes in for a quote-unquote routine eye exam? These questions really highlight the confusion and uncertainty that serves as a daunting hurdle for providers, makes it more challenging for them to care for their patients and provide those patients with the best opportunity for a lifetime of ocular health and clear vision. That's why we built iCode Education for this specific purpose. Our mission is to provide optometrists with resources to help you understand disease states, revenue cycles, and billing and coding so that you can put that on autopilot and truly care for your patients. Check out iCodeEducation.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. We've developed a premier billing and coding bundle that includes all of our billing and coding resources in one place. We also have a 10% discount code just for listeners of this podcast. Enter the coupon code E-Y-E-C-O-D-E-M-E-D-I-A-22 at checkout. We'd love to work with you. Check out iCodeEducation.com. Yeah. Yeah, so last question I want to ask you because uh, I think this comes this comes up often is when you don't have to do anything else, is it worth your time? Like is the financial aspects of managing ocular surface. So I know you love doing it and I know that that the primary reason you're doing it is because it's taking care of patients. But financially, is it worth it? So do you mean on the patient's end or do you mean like... No, I mean on your end, like for your practice. Is this a practice builder? Uh, well, uh, yes. Um, I mean, are you saying like once the patients are like, I've done everything that I can do or are you just saying... No, I'm asking... So here's the question I'm asking is, um, you know, I, you and I are both on email email groups and, you know, there's, there's this idea occasionally that... Um, that is pervasive that occurs where people will say, well, it's not worth my time to manage the disease, right? It's not like I'll have somebody else do it or, um, or they'll, they'll do it, but they'll do it begrudgingly. And, um, and I, and I, you, maybe you don't know how I feel, but, but I think when you actually run the numbers, um, it is, it is, uh, every bit is profitable, if not more profitable than what we, what most of us do in terms of comprehensive care. What I'm asking is like, how do you know, maybe, maybe you, you answered it. You said, yes, it's worth it to your practice, but how do you know it's worth it to your practice? Like financially, how do you run that, those numbers to understand yeah. what it is? So we do. So in my office, uh, I'm very transparent with my staff. I have small staff. I have uh, two associate doctors and two staff or four staff members at this time. And 
I run the numbers for them every month and they get to see like, this is our bottom line. And then what, what is our goal going to be this month for deposits? What's our goal going to be for sales? And then we also show them, Hey, last month and last year at this month, um, this was our percentage of optical sales. This was our percentage of medical office visits. And um, me as a practitioner, I'm at like 80 ish percent medical visits. So that is extremely profitable for my practice because I'm not doing very much in glasses and contact lens sales um, relative to what I'm doing. I mean, I am medically managing these patients uh, a lot. And my associate who is doing um, binocular vision, uh, traumatic brain injury, VT, she is also becoming, as she's developing her program, she's mm. becoming more medically based as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think it's yeah. the direction that we need to go. Uh, glasses and contact lenses are never gonna go away competition for glasses and contact lenses is also never going to go away. And so we have to hold on to things that we're good at, which is also medical optometry. And um, it is frightening how many children I am seeing with my bovine gland dropout mm -hmm. because they're not blinking and they're in front of the computer. And so it's like, if people think this is going to go away, I'm sorry, but I think that they're, they're very wrong. They're either not looking for it or they're, or they're not wanting to look for it or they're seeing it and they're saying, I'll just let somebody else deal with it because you know, if we open our eyes, I mean, I could treat 100% of the patients. that are covered or billable to insurance, right? So like, let's just say that it's office visits and it is punctual occlusion. Um, you know, if like, let's say you are already, you know, seeing maybe three comprehensive exams an hour, you could probably, most people with the infrastructure they have could um, have a, a tech, uh, ha administer a, a questionnaire, um, even forget about forget about like uh, other imaging that you're talking about. Administer a questionnaire. The doctor could come in, put a uh, a um, you know they could take VAs, pressures. Uh, doctor can come in and have staining, and do nothing but that, and spend you know five to ten minutes with a patient, and just listening to them. And by by doing that, like and and you know prescribe a medication or don't uh, use a punctal occlusion or don't, but the preponderance of those times, if you took, let's say a 15 minute slot,
the revenue that you could generate from that slot by by doing those things would be at least the average uh, of an independent practice generating revenue. Main point I was making is just that, you know, the revenue you can generate um, even with a, a a 15 minute brief exam or a 20 minute brief exam is probably uh, more significant. And ultimately it leads to this kind of total package that a patient has access to and it makes you more valuable. So that patient is going to return to you when they know they can't get that same thing other places. I think that's the important part. I, I could not agree more. Yep. Yeah. I could not agree more. And for me in my practice now, I mean, before I couldn't dive into dry eye as much as I wanted to because I was doing everything and I just, my capacity wasn't there. And having an associate come on who can take a portion of things like the binocular vision, the, the, the TBIs, the, she can manage the glaucoma patients that we have in or the retina patients and then I can more focus on this. We've got a total package because we've got an inner office referral center. We see a need and then we refer it out, whether it be to each other or it, you know, be to outside, you know, to to a provider that is better suited for that. Um, but it is absolutely a practice grower You're looking for it and you know how to manage it or you know who to manage it. Well, yeah, I think to summarize on that point, you know, people are wondering if they can afford an associate in a lot of cases. Like, yeah, if you if you delve into these things, that's how you afford associates, and that's how you can that's how you can bring them on and and you know, uh, give them a place. Mm-hmm. So, listen, Amber, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. This is a lot of fun. Thank you. I was so thrilled uh, to be here. This is my first podcast, so um, I, I was very honored to be asked, and it was great to be able to catch up with you, and uh, I look forward to seeing you in person sometime soon. 